You're listening to the Theology for the Church podcast with Dr. Caleb Leonard, a resource for the church that aims to help Christians explore how Christian doctrine, framed by the biblical story, is to be applied to the Christian life in the context of the local church. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Theology for the Church podcast. Today I'm joined by Dr. Paul Tyson, Senior Research Fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies in the Humanities at the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia. Paul Tyson is the author of several books in the areas of theology, philosophy, and sociology. He's an integral thinker who works across disciplines, which provides readers and students with a unique perspective on a variety of issues regarding the integration of theology and philosophy and sociology and epistemology and science and all that good stuff. Uh, And and what we're going to be discussing together in this episode is Dr. Tyson's newest book, A Christian Theology of Science, Reimagining a Theological Vision of Natural Knowledge. Dr. Tyson, welcome to the show, and thank you for joining me for this conversation. Great, Caleb. Wonderful to be here. Well, before we jump in to talk about your book a little bit, I would just like for you to share with our listeners a little bit more about yourself. Uh, How did you get where you are today? Family, educational background, uh, church involvement, vocation, that type of stuff. Okay. Well, the family is probably the least complicated bit. so I'm a late middle-aged uh, man with uh, surrounded by women, surrounded by beautiful women. My my wife Annette, and then four daughters. And um, people ask me sometimes, you know, how do I manage? And I say, you know, worse things could happen to a man than to be surrounded by beautiful women. So uh, they're they're all amazing. Um, my oldest is 22, and my youngest is 13, and um, they're fantastic people. Um, my church background, so I'm a kind of a born and bred Baptist, although you, you're not meant to be born a Baptist, but uh, you know what I mean. <laughs> and <laughs> Sure. And uh, so I, I grew up in the Baptist church, which I, which I loved. Um, had a complicated passage um, with church, uh, which involved um, going to our local Catholic church for five years, which was... Uh, which was really interesting, but I couldn't ever finally swim the Tiber on just a couple of issues. And uh, so we ended up Anglican, um, which you would call Episcopalian in America, I suppose. Um, yeah. And, uh, but uh, one thing that happened to me 20 years ago was a chaplain at a state school in Brisbane um, and uh, secondary school, well, I don't know, so, so 13 to 12 to... 18 year olds um our, our system's a bit different to yours i i think um it was a fabulous time and we had seven religious education streams um which i coordinated um so we had catholic protestant orthodox jewish buddhist hindu and islamic streams and uh, i ran the protestant stream and got to know all the other sort of communities very well uh, in particular catholic and orthodox communities and they they really opened my eyes to a lot of things I didn't really know about church history, didn't really know about doctrinal development, didn't really know about um, the sort of the big story of of the church. So that was um, a very helpful 
eye-opener for me and not long after that I well actually while I was doing that I started my doctorate uh, which I did on um, the nature of faith uh, as a sociological category uh, and this led me to John Milbank's work um, theology and social theory which is uh, a head-crunching mind-opening brick of a book uh, I'd recommend mm. you read it but uh, in small doses and with um, lots of uh, sedatives <laughs> um, it's a uh, but it's a fabulous eye-opener and, and gave me a big vision on the sort of the whole construct of, of secular reason and where it comes from and it's a and it's a theological idea um, so that was really helpful and then I, I did my doctorate in the sociology of knowledge really and uh, just went further and further into metaphysics and theology while I was doing that because you can't really make sense of how we believe and know and practice our contemporary way of life if you sort of don't understand the long backstory to how that happened so um, this led me down a very interesting uh, set of rabbit holes and uh, I, I, to me it really expanded my faith and really um, gave me new ways of understanding the work of the Spirit um, whereas sometimes academia can be a, a great way of sort of uh, losing your faith <laughs> sure. um, but uh, I, I found it really really helpful and um, got to know some really amazing theologians and philosophers from across the three main sort of streams of Christian tradition, the Catholic, Protestant and Orthodox, in the process. Oh, that's that's really fascinating. Is that, is that enough? Yeah, that no, that's that's great. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you for sharing that. No, that's that's really helpful. So with that background in mind, I'm, I'm excited to talk to you a little bit about uh, your, your newest book. So uh, Dr. Tyson, to start, Tell me about the, the title of your book, The Theology of Science, you know, renewing it, this theological vision of natural knowledge, right? Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but in framing the discourse between theology and science like you have in your title, which is representative of kind of the trajectory of the book as a whole, it, it takes the science and religion debate and it kind of flips it around and arguing for a Christian theological understanding of science rather than a modern scientific understanding of Christian theology. Is, is that true? And if so, could you explain that to us just a little bit more? Definitely. Um, basically, accepting it's not age old, um, so it's only really a 19th century idea. Um, the uh, we're kind of presented with this sort of you know science and religion conflict story, um, which was invented in the late nineteenth century. Sure. <laughs> um, but what you're saying about the flip definitely happened. So from the nineteenth century, late nineteenth century, sort of science becomes our first way of thinking about truth, and we look at theology through that lens. Uh, before that, it wasn't like that. Um, very, very early, very, very closely before that. So um, one of my, uh, the guys I like to study is uh, Soren Kierkegaard. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've come across the Danish guy who's blamed with the term <laughs> yes. existentialism. Um, it, it is actually his word, but uh, what Sartre means by that is nothing like what mm. Kierkegaard means by that. Um, 
So I studied Kierkegaard very closely and as a sociologist he's fascinating because he's operating before this flip. So you can see he totally integrates um, uh, wisdom, mathematics, uh, belief and empirical sort of understanding. He, he integrates them underneath a, a sort of first tr truth discourse of, of Lutheran theology. And um, and this was kind of what everyone did at that time in the 1840s. Um, it was no surprise to the people of Copenhagen that he did that. It's a surprise mm. to us now because of the flip. Um, but it's the flip is very recent. Um, but um, so let, let me give you a little example. Okay, so one of Kierkegaard's huge fat books, which again is like John Milbank's Theology and Social Theory, a head cruncher, and you can't drink it without, you can't read it without drinking lots of coffee and, um, you know, various sure. forms of sedatives <laughs> and stimulants. Um, uh, his book, Concluding Unscientific Postscript, is about the epistemological and ontological significance of sin and faith. Um, and uh, he does another great little book called um, The Two Ages, where he applies this way of thinking to what what is obviously, when you look at it, a sociological analysis of um, Golden Age Denmark, of, of burger life, city town life in Copenhagen in his time. And he's also got the first deeply insightful critique of the modern press in that book. And uh, I don't think it's been bettered, actually. It's a, it's a rip, ripper of a critique of the modern press. Um, but um, so he, he takes these, he takes uh, divine inspiration, divine revelation in the scripture as public knowledge. Um, and he takes sort of observation of sociological facts, empirical knowledge as public knowledge. And so these kind of two categories of thinking revealed and sort of sensory based are integrated underneath a theological framework of um, his Christian, his Lutheran understanding of, of reality. And he had no difficulty in writing like that and putting them all together and making them all um, work. And the thing he was able to do, which we are not able to do anymore in sociology, is he was able to say not only what society is like, um, but what it should mm. be like. Yeah. <laughs> um, because that the categories of um, purpose and meaning are, are divine categories. They're not empirical categories. But he was able to put those two things together, and we can't do that anymore. So we try and make whatever's normative what should be. Uh, and theologically, all you're doing is you, you're making sin um, natural, <laughs> and uh, and whatever's natural is good now. <laughs> so um, we get into an awful lot of trouble. We can't do that anymore. We can't do the way Kierkegaard integrated revelation with with um, you know empirical knowledge and rational thinking. Um, so that that's a result of this flip that you're talking about. The way we have made um, just rational and empirical knowledge our only way of talking about public truth and uh, then you can believe whatever you like about its meaning you can be a buddhist you can be a christian you can be a pagan you can be whatever you like that doesn't really matter that's not about knowledge that's only about belief um, 
So, so we're in a lot of trouble if we want a meaningful understanding of the world now. Meaning has been radically subjectivized and the only thing we've got to talk about truth with is sort of brute and bare facts that don't mean anything or that mean whatever people want mm, them to mean. Sure, yeah. <laughs> right? So uh, so we're in a lot of trouble with this front. And you're right, this, this big flip, there's a, a wonderful historian I've worked with, Peter Harrison, at the University of Queensland here. Um, and his book, The Territories of Science and Religion, is, is a fantastic book that I'd highly recommend. Um, he talks about what he calls the remarkable reversal in the 19th century, where it's a late 19th century thing. The, the word scientist isn't used before the 19th century. Um, the scientist was invented in the 19th century. <laughs> okay, um, And before that, it was natural philosophy. And it was always kind of connected to theology. But we separated them out. And then we made science, this kind of, we separated science out from religion. And then we made science about public, public truth. And, you know, religion just about private personal freedom of belief. Believe whatever you like. It's not a problem. Um, and so the way in which Western culture was unified around high meaning up until that time, uh, the high meaning of the Christian revelation, uh, gets profoundly ditched and, um, and we've struggled to sort of orientate ourselves as Christians in the world ever since mm. <laughs> in, in yeah. the West. Um, and, and so the whole science and religion thing is intimately connected with what we would now call the culture war, um, which is sort of this sense of, uh, the conservative people who are Christians and want to honor God first in their life and to not be just a private personal belief, um, find that the public space no longer accepts those truth categories. And, and you think, well, if you don't have those truth categories in the public space, what's holding us together? It's just making money and and going on holidays, <laughs> yeah, um, which isn't terribly deep. No, it's, it's so, really not. Uh, so, so these these things are radically connected with our whole way of life. They're not just science and religion issues. No, that's really it's really helpful just to get that background in in history there too, and it, and it kind of ties into something. I think it may be helpful for you to help our our listeners understand and and i believe it's in in chapter three where you talk about christian theology as you mentioned is a is a first truth discourse and uh, for the majority of that chapter and this is obviously an oversimplification perhaps but you you kind of do so by comparing and contrasting two different worldviews which you've hinted at this theocentric ontological foundationalism and then uh, the egocentric epistemological foundationalism. So would, would you define and explain what you mean by these terms, how they differ, and then answer for us why having a theology, a Christian theology, as our first truth discourse is, is so important? And I think you've hinted at this already, but could you dive into that a little bit for us? Great, good question. Um, so we sort of get told this story that the Middle Ages was sort of egocentric. Um, 
the Middle Ages was a, a time when everything revolved around humanity. We were the center of the cosmos and um, everything was a small little world that revolved around man. Okay. And then now we know we're just a speck in the, at the edge of the cosmos somewhere with no particular significance. And uh, we're sort of all grown up now. And we're not, we're not self-centered in the cosmic sense and uh, we mature. Well, in reality, something like the opposite has happened. So in the medieval view, it's not man that's the center. Man's at the bottom of the cosmos, right? God's at the center. It's, it's a totally theocentric cosmology. And now it's only the knowledge of man that orientates meaning. Now it's totally egotistical, sort of anthropological egotistical outlook about where the center of meaning and truth is. It's just between our ears. Um, so the, um, uh, I don't know if you, I'll dabble in with Immanuel Kant just quickly here. Um, these guys are, you know, seriously brilliant people and uh, you can't sort of dabble them with them quickly without doing some sort of injustice, but I'll, I'll, I'll make some broad sweeping comments here. So, um, in the 18th century, there were two strong, what we would now call two sort of strong streams of thinking in philosophy, Western philosophy, which we call rationalism and empiricism. Not that, you know, people were just sure. one or the other, right? But um, there are two sort of strong ways of thinking about the world. There was um, rationalism is, is kind of, you start with reason and the thing about reason is it's circular. Okay, so uh, an equation, for example, is true whichever way you look at it. Uh, whichever side of the equal sign you start with, it's true. Right? And it's kind of true by definition. It's a circular sort of way of thinking about pure rational concepts presupposing each other. Uh, now, the problem is you can't... The 18th century had a real difficulty connecting that with the contingent world where, where things don't necessarily rationally always happen the way they should because there are so many different uh, things going on in the world that a lot of things seem to happen randomly and a lot of things uh, can't be necessarily known before they happen. So this other way of thinking which we call empiricism is where you wait and see what happens. You, you just look and after it's happened you say oh that's what happened. <laughs> mm -hmm. So the 18th century had this difficult problem of trying to integrate what's what Kant calls a priori rational thinking with a posteriori empirical thinking. And the gears just didn't mesh. Um, and Kant solved it in a really brilliant way, which I think is actually a trick. Um, he solved it by saying, well, let's not worry about which of these views connects to reality. Let's just only think about um, the world as we perceive it. So instead of metaphysical truth being beyond our mind, everything is reduced to what our mind can mm. understand. And this is called a phenomenological approach. So Kant says, well, you can't know noumena, you can't know reality as it is in itself. We only ever know phenomena, reality as it appears to us. And so this strongly centers the the locus of knowledge in my own consciousness. 
in a way which would have been impossible in the Middle Ages. So um, from a, a perspective prior to Kant where it's assumed that there's a reality beyond my mind and meaning is beyond my mind um, and uh, comes to me from divine sources, uh, Kant says, well, we just can't know about that. But what we do know is the structures of our own mind and experience are rational and meaningful. And we work, try and work out what rational and meaningful understanding of the contingent world and sort of moral truths are without reference to anything beyond our own consciousness. And so this is the what I mean by the egotistical uh, epistemological, what, what do they call it? He, uh, Egocentric <laughs> epistemological foundationalism. Thank yeah. you, thank you. I'm glad you read the book. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is what I refer to as a as a, a, a epistemological foundationalism. Like, is trying to say, well, what can I, what can I pin certain knowledge to? That's what epistemological foundationalism, and it's pinned to the ego. It's pinned to my own consciousness, my own experience of of reality, and my experience of reality, not to reality itself. So this is the view that, that really latched on as sort of solving the dissonance between rationalism and empiricism. And it takes off like a bomb. Um, uh, and we've been formed by that philosophically ever since, even though it's had a very bumpy ride. Um, like, like it's fascinating that straight after Kant comes Hegel and Hegel tries to get the big picture transcendent reality uh, of Geist back into the story and um, and that's a fascinating experiment um, and uh, very soon after that comes Marx and he says he just flips Hegel upside down and he says uh, you know actually uh, practice rather than the absolute is what sort of defines progress and spirit in humanity and uh, so kind of we, are, we become the, the gods defining meaning and purpose, um, which is actually exactly what Immanuel Kant does. So famously in the start of his uh, Critique of Pure Reason, he says, what I'm doing in making phenomena the center instead of noumena is exactly what Copernicus did. So Copernicus said, well, let's not think that... Um, uh, the sun goes around the earth. Let's think that the earth goes around the sun. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> and he's saying what I'm doing is what Kant is doing. He's saying, let's not think um, that reality conforms with our knowledge, but that knowledge um, uh, defines reality. Our knowledge is what defines reality. So instead of putting reality as something we revolve around, something our knowledge revolves around. He put our knowledge at the center and reality as a function of our knowledge. Um, and famously, Karl Marx at one point says, uh, well, the point of my philosophy is that man becomes the son of his own uh, world and revolves around himself. Mm. <laughs> so we, we put man at the center yeah. very strongly um, with this epistemological move and um, you know, there, 
Marx is a really interesting guy. There's, there's a lot of fascinating things about him, but like this is a there's a kind of a fundamental idolatry at the whole uh, after Kant. There's there's a kind of an epistemological idolatry, if I'm going to sort of speak as a theologian, in the way modern philosophy works, and you can see uh, like going from this view where man is the center of all meaning and purpose. Um, and reality has to conform with our stories about meaning and purpose. You get to Foucault, you get to Judith Butler, no problem. Uh, the, uh, and the, there's a good way of saying that what's called postmodernism is simply hypermodernism. It's, mm. uh, this, uh, it's the natural progression from Immanuel Kant's marriage of rationalism and empiricism. So Foucault and Butler are not sort of some foreign enterprise in modern philosophy. They're just part of modern philosophy where man becomes the center and we define, back in, like back in the Garden of Eden, whatever good and evil is that we want to define. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, so that's epistemological, uh, egocentric epistemological foundationalism is profoundly central to the intellectual discourse and cultural habits of our contemporary world. And I'm trying to say theological, a theological foundationalism says, well, God is the center of meaning and truth and, and the, the source of all created reality, um, but is not, re not himself reducible to that created reality. So all of created reality rests on God for its very being, but God himself is not dependent on created reality or even a being within created reality, like some guy with a beard sitting on a cloud, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so, um, so this big understanding of God as the grounds of being, um, so this is what ontology is all about. Um, in Greek thinking, ontology is the science of being. Um, so, oh, goodness me, I shouldn't, I can't let that go. Let me try and describe being and its science a little yeah. bit for you. Okay. Um, so, um, one of the big problems of ancient Greek philosophy is why is there something rather than nothing? <laughs> and it's, it's actually it a is, big question. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so in Christian theology, we believe that God made the world out of nothing. Um, that the ultimate nature of matter and space and time and energy um, is the word of God. Um, so it, matter and space and time and energy aren't their own grounds. They are the function of creation. They are a function of a creator. And so the grounds of what things are, which is just what being means, um, the grounds of what things are is not itself. Um, to a, a traditional ontological understanding of God and creation. So to say uh, a theocentric ontological foundationalism is to say that God is the grounds of being and I'm going to think about truth and meaning from that basis rather than from the knowledge of man basis of egotistical, egocentric epistemological foundationalism. So this is two ways you can think about meaning and truth. And I'm saying a Christian way of thinking about meaning and truth is really not compatible with anything that's happened after Immanuel Kant. 
you know, that's really, that's really good. That's, that's really helpful. And so if we're thinking about integration between theology and science today, is that we're, we're having to go back before, you know, a Immanuel Kant, right. To, to be able to try to see how, how did people think about this being, you know, it integrated in a way that starts with this theocentric view versus this egocentric view. Like, I mean, people like yourself are writing things to help us get back there, but like you're saying, this is the air that our culture breathes, right? So what's it look like? What's this integration zone? You talk about that towards the, the end of the book, right? Recovering an integration zone between theology and science. I mean, what does that look like today at kind of the societal and individual level and and what do we need to do to be able to think more christianly about science and truth and and meaning and and those type of things maybe what are some obstacles we've got to overcome and this is a really hard question um thanks for asking (laughs) um so if you remember i talked about kierkegaard just a bit Mm -hmm. before um we were still doing integrative thinking in the early 19th century. It's really stops happening in the late 19th century. So we're not that far away from it, um, but we're, we're uh, in, in other ways a huge way from it because the habits of our sort of concepts of public meaning are now deeply defined by this idea that there's this total separation between instrumentally useful facts um, on the one hand, as well as, uh, and, and sort of personal meanings and narratives and poetic understandings of value. On the other hand, that basically we just, uh, you know, make up. <laughs> um, and uh, because those are the kind of assumptions of the world we live in, and in many regards, science has plays is the only thing that sort of plays a public priesthood role of, of deciding what's true and what's false. Um, the, uh, the sort of, if theology wants to talk to science, it has to talk to it on science's terms. This is our, our problem now. Sure. And the terms of science are supposedly kind of just about facts. Um, but the problem is, is everyone who's sort of, and this is a point that, you know, in effect, cultural theorists have got right, <laughs> that there's no such thing as a fact without a meaning. Yeah. Right? So, um, and, and all facts are only facts because they're significant. So um, if you just sort of sit a camera somewhere, it can't tell the difference between, you know, something that's not worth noticing and something that is worth noticing, right? So, um so significance and meaning are deeply a part of facts. And we have this sort of pretended world of scientific objectivity that's just about facts, but it never is. It always carries meanings. It always carries, um, in effect, metaphysical and theological baggage. So once you make that kind of uh, what, what Charles Taylor calls an imminent frame concept of truth and meaning once you make that the public categories of facts then 
you, you can't put in a transcendently referenced categories of meaning and be taken seriously anymore. Um, so so it's, a, it's a very difficult problem. So um, if uh, something like the transgender movement, uh, which presupposes a whole pile of um, modern gender theory uh, embedded in Foucault and Butler, um, so like it's a serious intellectual heritage, but um, it's premised on the idea that there is no true meaning to sex and gender, mm -hmm. right? Now, um, so, so it's opposed to all categories of natural meaning that is true for sex and gender. So it says, look, it's okay for me to be a cisgender man where I can say, uh, I'm a man, I decide my sex is male and I decide my gender is male, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it's okay for me, but as long as I think that's just my personal belief. If I think there's something normative about that, something transcendently and sacramentally referenced about that, well, that's immoral, mm -hmm. <laughs> okay? Um, and I'm being oppressive. It's not like I'm allowed to yeah. think that anymore, right? So, so, so we get this situation where um, so-called just facts that don't have any real meaning means that they have whatever meaning I want to give them accepting they can't have a real meaning yeah <laughs> right. so um so it's it's uh, in the name of tolerance and pluralism all concepts of true meaning and real meaning are excluded um so it's not tolerant and pluralistic sure. at all actually yeah. uh, okay so when we have a public discourse of the only truths we can talk about are sort of objective facts and then you give them whatever meaning you like that's not even true okay Facts always have meanings, and the meanings people give to them always have at least social consequences. Mm -hmm. So uh, if we want to reincorporate categories of the meaning of facts that are theologically grounded, um, everything about our life world rejects that. And uh, one of the big problems for Christian Christians since this flip we talked about is we accommodate this world and discover that we can no longer believe anything. <laughs> yeah. Um, or we say, or we say, I don't accept any of that, and then we're considered total outcasts and sort of, you know, primitive throwbacks uh, that that are just behind the times. Um, so it's a very difficult position for Christians trying to think about how do we integrate an understanding of the meaning of things with an understanding of the facticity of things. So this is the, you know, how do you integrate theology with science now? It's a, it's a difficult challenge. And anyone who gives you a simple answer is selling something. <laughs> yeah, no, that's definitely, that was, definitely that true. Good. So yeah. I, I wanted to, to ask you as well, you know, Christian theology of science, it's, it's not necessarily, you know, an apologetics book. It's, I think there's apologetic uh, things about it. And it, it, so it is apologetic in the sense that it seeks to draw us back to kind of those pre-modern roots, so to speak, in the West where, you know, science was seen as derivative, a divinely revealed knowledge. With that being said, how, how do you think your book could potentially be useful for pastors and serious church members who, are, who really want to wrestle 
with this issue or parents who are trying to teach their children a theology of of science and that they really want uh, their knowledge of of the natural world to be one that's theocentric because this is definitely a more philosophical book i would say but i but i think you know is is a pastor is is a father is someone who's worked in you know christian education i think that this is definitely a book that could be digested and used by by pastors and teachers and parents and things so i'm just curious your thoughts on um, how this might be potentially useful for those categories of of people out there that make up our listenership in terms of um six-day creation and that 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 sort of issue uh which is i had to put a chapter in my book about that uh i called it myth and history the fall and science um mm. This is a very complicated and difficult area. And I think this is one of the big things that parents and pastors and struggle with. How do you, how do you sort of broach this issue? Um, and it can be very divisive in the church as well. Um, so I, I'm going to have a little bang at that now. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's the most touchy and difficult topic. Um, so I don't give a definitive answer in my look at um, the relationship, what I think the true relationship is between natural history and Genesis. Um, My position is I really don't know. I really don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I think that's actually a quite sensible position to hold. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, What what I am not prepared to let go of is the, the truth of the doctrine of the fall. Um, so if the fall is just a made-up idea, nothing about our faith makes any sense mm-hmm. at all. Okay, why did Jesus need to come? You know, why why does the whole of creation groan? Um, uh, is is death and sickness just natural and good? Um, so uh, I don't think you can remove the doctrine of the fall and still have Christian theology. Um, and in relation to knowledge, it makes a huge difference. If we are fallen creatures, um, then our knowledge is not just neutral. Uh, the way we know things also can be um, distorting by sin. And when we talked about facts and meanings, facts are always meaningful in some way. And um, something sociologists talk about is confirmation bias, uh, which is kind of inescapable. You always see what you already know to be the case. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, George MacDonald had a beautiful little little phrase about this uh, in The Princess and the Goblins, which are, you, you must read these books um, by George MacDonald. Do you, do you know I, George I know MacDonald? the name. I have not read the books, though. Okay, well, he was C.S. Lewis's hero. And um, his children's stories are unbelievably good. And you can see where... A huge influence on the Narnia stories um, but at one point in the princess and the goblins I think it is um, MacDonald said you know seeing isn't believing it's only seeing mm. <laughs> right <laughs> yeah so but by this so God can be speaking to you and you won't see it 
right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Jesus had this problem a lot. Okay, he would do yeah. a miracle, and they say, "Ah, sure. oh, the devil." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like he would do nothing, and they would say, you "See, you're just a charlatan, right?" Mm-hmm. So, um, so, so we we believe what we are theologically already committed to believing, mm-hmm. and so knowledge is never simply neutral. And when it comes to categories of knowledge about something so profoundly significant and rich as the Genesis account of creation, um, which is absolutely, it's myth. Like, and, and I mean myth in a really big fat mm-hmm. sense, like how Lewis would mean myth, you know? It's, it's, it's a story that explains what is always true. Christian idea is that it's a true myth that the whatever the uh, you know historical details of the situation, what we know for sure is that God made the world totally good, and uh, that the imbalances that are now in stasis of um, competition and destruction and and disease and death. Uh, imbalance with you know life and cooperation and health and these sort of things that's a beautiful balance right but it's not Mm -hmm. the original balance right it's not the uh, it's not the fundamental truth of creation the fundamental truth of creation is what Augustine calls originary goodness so the the goodness of creation is is the primary reality that's always true and so the fact that we experience creation as in some ways um, broken, uh, significant ways is broken, is not really God's, it's not the final truth about creation. The final truth about creation is goodness. Uh, it is now, that's the final truth. But you can't ignore brokenness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and how do we make sense of brokenness? What does it mean? Um, and is it always going to be like this? Well, we have the Genesis myth in the big fat sense, like a true myth, saying brokenness comes into the world from outside and God himself intervenes into the world to deal with it in the incarnation. And we're in this in-between space where you've got God's dealing with the brokenness and the fact that it's not fully wound up um, uh, wait while we wait for the eschaton. That's So that kind of arc is you can't take that arc of original goodness fall divine intervention and eschaton out and still have christian theology so that's that's non-negotiable for me if i'm going to be a christian theologian so i hold on to that as true and as more true than anything anyone can tell me about facts which is doesn't mean to say that i can just sort of stick my fingers in my ears and ignore mm-hmm. facts. Um, with Thomas Aquinas, I am comfortable to say that truth is a unity, that all truths must cohere with each other. So if I can't see how the facts of science integrate with the truth of Christian revelation, I'm just going to hold that in a point of tension rather than resolve that. Um, so I've, I've got good friends who are um, deep, deeply um, beautiful Christians uh, who are, you know, uh, zoologists and evolutionary biologists, um, 
who uh, deal with the, the sort of the world of interpreting facts and meanings scientifically as their job. And they've got no problem at all with sort of separating their science from as one level of meaning from myth as another level of meaning. Um, to me, that's the problem of double truth. I can't do that. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, they've worked out how to do that. And you can understand that as a viable separating the, the point of mythic knowledge from factual knowledge is one way of trying to solve that problem. Um, and, and I would never pour scorn on people who do that. Um, uh, to me, it doesn't work because I'm thinking like a theologian and a, and a metaphysical philosopher. Um, so I don't, I don't know how you can integrate. I don't want to say that our contemporary knowledge of facts is, is, uh, can be ignored. <laughs> and um, on the other hand, I'm quite happy to say that there must be a unity of facts and meanings but our contemporary, as, as I understand, I can't see how to make that work. And I'm just going to sit with that tension and let things bubble along for a few hundred years. And rather than commit myself to our current state of knowledge being perfectly true. Because um, there's something we know about scientific theories is they change over time, usually for the better, right? <laughs> yeah. Now, um, I have a good friend who's working in an area called extended evolutionary synthesis. And this is the idea that, um, sure, we've got um, natural selection and competition and survival drives as a function of biological life, but there's also cooperation, right? There's also uh, uh, deeply integral mutually beneficial ways in which natural organisms and ecosystems work. And at present, our theories don't adequately address our theories of how systems change over time and how they balance don't adequately address this uh, problem of cooperation. Mm. Right? Um, so, so there's pressure inside the natural sciences for expanding the theoretical horizons. And if you get to a point where the categories of love become meaningful in biology, then I think we're kind of talking um, in terms that could be integral with Christian theology, where God is love and world, the world is good. Um, so, uh, but you also need the category of evil, <laughs> which is not presently in, in uh, biological categories. So the fact that these things are disintegrated is a big problem. So let, let me go back to the original problem here. So I have four, four daughters and from a young age, the question of how you talk about um, contemporary understandings of evolutionary biology and, and Christian faith in relation to the fall um, has been a challenging problem. <laughs> right? Sure. Um, the, the, way, the way I approach it is to make sure that um, my children understand that, you know, uh, contemporary academic knowledge is a really interesting and complicated animal, um, that should be sort of loved and appreciated. But, um, the, uh, our primary value and meaning commitments are given to us from the revelation of the scripture. And 
the, the deep stories of eternal reality that are revealed to us in the scriptures um, must always be our primary truth discourse. And then there's a place for bouncing around, kicking around the secondary discourse of contemporary knowledge uh, once you have, have that primary discourse in place. Um, now, this is something that seems inadequate for many people um, because they either would say you should go the total double truth way and say, well, you know, facts mean, uh, just tell you the facts of stuff and myths just tell you the meaning of stuffs and they don't need to cohere with each other. That's fine, right? <clears throat> That's one way you can go. Or well, the other way, you can synthesize them and say, no, what we believe in the scripture must be coherent with what the facts of science say. Uh, and I think both of those ways are bad, but I don't know how to address the problem. And I'm happy to sit in the tension. Sure. No, I think, and I think that's, uh, that's kind of the reality, too. And I think we forget that, you know, the scriptures are written with historical and cultural particularity and so to assume that Moses should apply certain scientific methods to explain how God created the world uh, seems to be a, a problem and not very wise to uh, kind of push those categories on on the biblical authors themselves and to see that you know as you've mentioned especially thinking about creation that the most important reality is that there is a creator God who is self-existent, who made everything and created this world good. And as you mentioned, there is a fall, but God intervenes particularly so in the incarnation and in union with Christ, like those who belong to Christ, right? They're destined for the new creation. And so whatever the mechanics are of, of actual creation is less important than the reality that there is a creator God uh, who, who made a world and placed man in it and brought his presence to dwell with them in the Garden of Eden and will one day fully establish not just the Garden of Eden but all of the new creation. There'll be a new heavens and a new earth where his that speaking Old Testament terms that divine temple presence right that temple is all of the new creation. Uh, so seeing those those realities, I think, like you said, you know, holding intention, like, I don't know exactly how, you know, like this fits with modern science and what I read in the biblical text um, every time I come to read a certain passage of scripture, but that's not necessarily a problem for me uh, because I, I don't think that the scriptures were written to, to do that, right? I don't think a... Uh, car manual is written to help me bake cookies, right? That's what recipes are for. And so I think the scriptures, you know, as a Protestant evangelical Christian who's confessionally Baptist, like I believe in the inerrancy and inspiration of scripture, right? So I think all that the Bible says is true, but I think it's less of the task of a theologian to prove how modern scientific methods can be applied to the scripture and, and show how there's a one-for-one -one correlation of that truth, if that makes sense. Yes, I think, I think that's a good approach. Um, I, I don't think it's a good approach to just assume that modern scientific knowledge can be applied to um, the Bible. 
um, obviously it wasn't in Moses's head. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> and um, and uh, and then this is a uh, you know I I have a lot of respect for for a number of good friends on all sides of this spectrum. Sure. Right? Um, the 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 way in which creation science uh, young earth creationists reject double truth and then say well you know sure it's not the bible is not a science textbook but if it's true then then how do you integrate kind of contemporary categories of proof proof of meaning with um the revelation now that's a difficult task and i don't think it succeeds very well but i respect people who mm -hmm. try um and the other approach to say well look really scientific truth um, as we currently have it today um, is a very serious and intelligent and um, respecting of the facts kind of thing and subjects itself to serious and rigorous testing and, and dispute. Um, so it needs to be taken very seriously because we are people committed to the truth. Um, and uh, so therefore there's much more attempt to separate categories of meaning and purpose from categories of fact and history um and uh there's the very sophisticated and and uh you know ways with integrity that people try and do that um i'm not comfortable with either of those things and i and i'm i'm, I'm for sitting in the fence and saying i'm not comfortable i think that's that's got to be accepted as a valid position where you get just you just pushed either way from your friend saying no no you must be on my side sure. no no you must be on my side well, why why can't I just not have a side on this <laughs> <laughs> and and there are reasons why I can't have a side on this because it has huge implications whichever way you go um, so I'm uh, there are huge implications even for not having a sure. side <laughs> um, so uh, yeah it's complicated yeah and I think like just just kind of reminded me you know there's the like you mentioned the sophistication of, you know, science, scientific methodology and all of those things for today. It's, you know, and the biblical text itself is sophisticated and that it's made up of many different genres and writers with their own personalities and theological emphases and this reality of, you know, a, a divine author and, and human authors, you know, writing scripture together so it's a theological interpretation of history through various genres of poetry and narrative and proverbs and gospels and apocalypses and you know all of all of these different literary devices and things that are used that don't make them less true just because they can't be subject to you know say a certain scientific testing and, and things like that and so I think that tensions uh, something that we almost have to learn to be be comfortable with you know some sometimes in our journey of faith yeah 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 definitely um this this reminds me of a beautiful book by John Betts um called um after enlightenment the post-secular visions of uh J.G. Haman uh now Haman was Kierkegaard's hero <laughs> and a friend of Immanuel Kant's um, and um, 
so Kant wrote this fat book, uh, A Critique of Pure Reason, and then in 40 pages, Haman wrote the meta-critique of the critique of the purism of reason and totally blew Kant up way back then, but he didn't get it published until after Kant had died because okay. Kant was his friend. Um, now, I, I'm bringing this up because Haman, um, who is very difficult to read, you, you're much better reading John Betts's book <laughs> than, than Haman, because Haman was one of these brilliant polylinguist guys who taught himself Arabic just for fun and could speak 11 languages and all that sort of stuff. Um, one of the very few people in, in uh, 18th century Germany who was fluent mm. in English. Um, uh, so he's a remarkable guy and, and he just, he has this incredible conversion story um, where he was, um, uh, he'd blown, uh, he'd blown his family's fortune or something um, and he was uh, on, in poverty and destitution in, in London and he read the Bible. <laughs> this this unbelievably brilliant linguist guy read the Bible, and God spoke to him, right? And and he just embraces the the incredible richness of the scriptures, which like from a linguist perspective, right? It's it's in different languages, it's in different genres, it's got this incredible human texture mm -hmm. to it, right? And yet it's the word of God, so the the sort of the the delicacy and humanity of the scripture. And yet it carries the meaning of God to us in words we can understand, but never finally master, um, is, is uh, just a beautifully, beautifully rich thing. So the, so part of the, part of the answer to our problem is, is more respect for the scripture, um, rather than making it into a sort of a watertight science manual <laughs> or, a, or a perfect philosophical system. Um, it's none of those things. It's uh, it's got all those windows open, um, but um, through those open windows to sort of you know sort of do funny things with Leonard Cohen's song, the light gets yeah. in <laughs> through through all the human texture and cracks in it. Um, the spirit moves beyond our categories of knowledge and speaks directly to us. Um, so Haman's a great advocate for that kind of perspective on scripture, and I think. Uh, we, we really need to hold to that um, as the, the sort of the, the mystery and miracle of the revelation that's given to us is best understood sort of sacramentally and metaphysically as well as being a very human. And um, so it's, it's like the incarnation, fully human and yeah, fully divine. Yeah, right? absolutely. <laughs> the scripture is definitely fully human and yet it's breathed by God's spirit that is not human. So both of those things at once. No, that's really that's really helpful. I appreciate you sharing that. And maybe the the last thing here, just what, what would be some other resources that you would point us to that would be helpful for us in thinking through kind of a theology of science that I could link to uh, with your book in the show notes? Um, what else could or should our listeners interested in this subject and just trying to you know, think Christianly about science, what are some things they should pick up and read? Maybe something that would be uh, really approachable and then maybe something more for the intermediate, more philosophical thinkers out there. There's a short answer and a long answer to that. I'll, I'll give you the, um, 
the long answer first. Sounds right? good. Um, so, um, there's some really good people at the Faraday Institute in Cambridge. Um, so if any of your listeners are, are wanting to work at how you sort of as best as you can integrate conservative Christian theology with contemporary scientific knowledge, uh, the Faraday Institute is doing some very good work. Um, they're wonderful people. Uh, you know, they, they don't they don't understand me, but, <laughs> but they're, they are wonderful people and they're doing beautiful work. So um, there is there are some really, you know, Christians in science um, working out how you can have a, a, a meaningful synthesis of contemporary scientific understandings without compromising, you know, orthodox Christian belief. Uh, so that's happening, which, which I think is a wonderful development. There tended to be, uh, you either, you either um, synthesize your theology with contemporary um, scientific thinking or, and, and, you know, if your theology suffers for that, well, bad luck. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> or, or, you, or we tended to um, try and use the old, uh, science to argue theological positions, which is the young earth creationist view. And both of these views, I don't think, uh, the, the, both of these views have you know, profound difficulties. So, so I think that what the Faraday people are trying to do in, in uh, synthesizing um, contemporary scientific knowledge with orthodox Christian belief, and people like John Lennox is fabulous at this. He's a mathematician, so he, 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 he doesn't really have a lot to say about his, his maths is a nice, clean science. <laughs> right. Um, um, but he's a wonderful thinker, John Lennox, a wonderful thinker. So there's some great apologists in this area in the traditional science and religious religion spaces. And it's also the case that um, what's going on in the young earth creation scene is changing deeply and um, becoming, I think, much more scientifically sophisticated. So um, without letting go of, of what it sees as, as, as necessary theological commitments. Um, so there's, I think you, you don't need to feel like you have to have a profoundly polarized view on this. I think there's much to be learned from both attempts to master this really difficult problem in the Christian world. Um, and so, so there's good stuff out there on, on both of those sort of sides of the fence. Um, so that's the long answer. The short answer is nobody's really doing anything worth reading and you should read my books. <laughs> so, um, so, um, so without, let me, let me try and modify that a little bit. Um, so what I'm trying to do is neither of those things. What I'm trying to do is neither uh, integrate, but at different levels, science with Christian theology um, or subordinate um, contemporary science to Christian theological um, understandings of, nat of natural of how natural history should be. I'm not trying to do either of those things. I'm trying to do something more metaphysical 
and more overtly theological, a theology of science. Uh, and there's not a lot you can read in that area. Um, but there are three books that I can recommend, all of which happen to be by me. There is a reason that I <laughs> asked to talk to you about this subject. So it, it's not totally self-serving. I would agree with this uh, position here. So go for it. <laughs> Thanks. Um, uh, uh, it, it is not a terribly common stance that I'm taking. So I tend to get drowned by both sides. Um, uh, as Anyway. So I've done a little book called Seven Brief Lessons on Magic, which is um, 22,000 words. It's a tiny little thing. Um, and um, what I mean by magic is anything that science can't see. Right? So love, goodness, beauty, meaning, purpose. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? All these kind of little things that science doesn't see and ask, are they real? Can we say that things that science can't see are real? And I think we obviously can. So that's my little book, Seven Brief Lessons on Magic. Um, there's my book, A Christian Theology of Science, which is, is, is quite a reasonably crunchy kind of book. Um, but I, I've tried to make it as accessible as I can to introduce this idea of, of a more metaphysically orientated and theologically orientated different approach to the science and religion problem, which is an effect to bypass the science and religion problem by trying to get back to before the flip and see if we can sort of go back before we mm -hmm. go forwards rather than keep on going forwards in the flip. Um, so that's what that book tries to do. And I have my favorite book in, I, I did a big project with funding from the Templeton Foundation, God bless them. Um, with a number of uh, philosophers and uh, theologians and scientists and historians, which is called the After Science and Religion Project. And three books came out of it. Um, two of them are preposterously expensive, so I won't recommend them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, although they're, they're, they've got all the big big names in. But the, the other book that's just come out with Wittgenstock, which are a beautifully affordable publisher, um, is called Astonishment and Science engagements with William Desmond and it's um, William Desmond is a an Irish theological metaphysician um, absolutely brilliant guy at the Catholic University of Laverne in Belgium okay. and I think he's also at Villanova and at, and at Maynooth um, in Ireland um, absolutely beautiful guy I don't know if you have any Irish friends but like he's uh, just such a lyrical He's the kind of guy who'll just burst into poetry at any moment <laughs> uh, in, in, you know, one of 15 languages. <laughs> um, so he's a brilliant guy. He was um, kicked out of the American Hegelian Society um, because he was he did this wonderful critique of uh, Hegel. <laughs> so he's, That'll do he's it. a really up there, high power thinker. So um, he's, um, he's not necessarily easy to read at a first go if you're not used to that sort of reading. But this book is composed of 12 responses to his a chapter by William and um, about astonishment. So the book's about three modalities of wonder. So there's curiosity, perplexity, and astonishment. And science kind of reduces everything to curiosity is William's argument. And um, we need 
perplexity and astonishment, particularly astonishment, uh, to 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 round out our view about science and to not have everything sort of reduced just in terms of finding out how it works and then harnessing its powers for our own purposes. So it's a really beautiful metaphysical and theological look at the nature of science. And there are 12 people who bounce off his chapter. Um, and I'd recommend you read the responses before you read his chapter. Then his chapter will make more sense. <laughs> um, and there are people of all sorts of... Uh, it's just a beautiful book. So this is, this is a book about astonishment and how we need to keep the kind of childlike wonder alive when we think about science and theology. Excellent. Well, thank you for sharing that and, and kind of explaining some of those to us. Dr. Tyson, it's been uh, really fun and enjoyable having this conversation with you about a Christian theology of science. So thank you for coming on the show and sharing your thoughts with your book with us. Wonderful, Caleb. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a delight to talk to you. Listeners, if you enjoy the podcast, Please subscribe to the show if you haven't already. Share it with your friends and give it a good review, whether written or just clicking some stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps others find this show that may be interested in gospel-centered resources like this one. Thank you, and until next time, Sola de Gloria.